Well, last week I had talked to you about how we were called to battle, and I used the illustration of people out in the battlefield, people who serve with our military, and the training they must go through in order to be prepared for that battle, and how it's so important that they not only be in the right physical condition, they not only be armed properly in order to endure whatever battles they might face, they must know how to work together with one another. They must show an ability to follow commands to work within a team and to be able to respond accordingly to everything that's going out in the field. But there is more than that when it comes to being prepared for battle. Because not only do you have to have the right equipment, the right kind of armor, the right kind of training, the right kind of conditioning, you also need to know your enemy. You need to know who it is you're going against. That's what made the Vietnam War so difficult. The guerrilla warfare nature of that war made it very difficult to know at any given time who the enemy was. But as much intelligence as we can gather, we want to know about our enemy. We want to understand what is their methods of attack, where they might be located, the telltale signs of how we know they might be near, and how to respond to the attacks when they do come. We want to understand the enemy because just being armed with the armor and the weapons is not going to be enough by itself. The more intelligence you have, the better prepared you will be. And we see this phenomena even in sports. When sports teams go against one another, the team that is better prepared for the strategies and the strengths and weaknesses of the other team has an advantage. And so we too, we do not want to be ignorant of the enemy. Because as I've been emphasizing, the battle that we must be prepared for, unlike the person who's out in the field, the battle for us is spiritual, not physical. And because it is spiritual, we engage in that battle with our minds. We engage in that battle with what we understand, which is why we want to apply ourselves to knowing the scriptures. Because the more you understand these scriptures, the better your armor is going to be, the better your equipment is going to be, the better prepared you're going to be, and the better you're going to know the attacks of the enemy. The fact that the battle is not physical but spiritual should emphasize the fact that the spiritual battle is against a far greater enemy than we could ever face physically. Let me say that again. Our spiritual enemy is far greater and more dangerous to us than any physical enemy could be. But we have great protection. We have great protection through the Word of God. And so we trust upon the Word of God. We apply ourselves to the Word of God. We study the Word of God. We grow in the Word of God. And we trust in the strength of the Lord to help protect us in battle. And for those of you who are Christians, the battle is not whether you're going to keep or lose your salvation. That's not the battle. Because if you have put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the promise that your salvation is secured. You can never lose it. But what the battle is, is that the battle can make you ineffective for combat. The battle can make you ineffective as a warrior of God, as a disciple of Christ. And even worse, in that battle, you could end up being a greater help for the enemy than you are for the people of God. 
And so that's why we need to come back to this message this morning. I had just covered really the first uh, verse and a half um, last week, and we're going to continue on. And really our focus, it says Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, it's really from 11 through 13, but we'll go ahead and review what we learned last week and then get into our passage for this morning. But my purpose is to prepare us for battle in the spiritual war so that Christ may be glorified in us because that ultimately is our purpose. We want to be able to glorify Christ no matter what the circumstances are. We want to be able to show the world that while the world may be overly concerned, anxious, and worried about the things of the world, we have our hope in an unshakable source that can never be taken away from us. And so as we go through these verses, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, Paul exhorts us to battle with four essential realities needed for Christian warfare. Let's go ahead and read through our passage for this morning from 10 to 13, and we'll go back and review what we had learned before. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, last week, our focus was really on the first exhortation. The first exhortation, the first command from Paul about the essential realities needed for Christian warfare, which was the call to strength. The call to strength. You remember that in verse 10, we saw this message, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And when he starts off with finally, what that is showing us is that we have arrived at the final section of Ephesians. This is the final section, this is the concluding section, but this is not separate from the rest of the book, but rather the entire book culminates now in this section right here. Everything that Paul has taught us leading up to this final section is to prepare us for spiritual warfare. And you may remember these tables that I showed last week as a summary of what we saw in Ephesians 1-3. to Really those first three chapters was a summary of the theology that we learned from Paul, the greatness of our salvation, the wondrous plan that God had to be able to save us, to adopt us into His family, to give us forgiveness of sins, to give us the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee of our future salvation. We were reminded, actually, of our past about how we were saved out of darkness by the grace of God, not because of any works that we did, but because of the work that God did on our behalf. And we learned about the reconciliation also. Reconciliation, meaning people coming together. We learned about the reconciliation that happened between us and God, as well as us and other people. So for those who are in Christ, there are no more dividing walls. We are one in the family of God. We have a unity that was brought to us by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the emphasis upon the power of God. And we see prayers from Paul, praying that you and I would know the power of God and that we would draw upon this power of God and that we'd be able to glorify God through that 
power. And then the last three chapters from Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 is where we have the application. And the central command at the start of chapter 4 was for all of us as believers. Paul wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we have been called. In other words, you have been called to salvation. Now you are to walk in a manner that's worthy of that salvation. You want to glorify God to the world. And this is not an unreasonable request because we have been given eternal life. And so we not only are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, but we saw that followed up with walk no longer like the Gentiles. There was a way that we once walked before salvation. And now there is a way that we are called to walk once we have been saved. We are called to also walk in love in chapter 5. Walk in love with the emphasis upon purity of our walk. Purity, free from immorality. And we are to walk as children of light because we remember that Jesus Christ, when He came into the world, He came into the world as light. Light shining into darkness. Meaning that what was not previously known has now been revealed. The gospel provided light into our lives, helped us to see the truth. Helped us to see our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we as children of light, we are also to walk in that same light. And we are to bring light to others. We are to help other people to hear and understand the gospel that they may be saved if they repent. And then we saw in halfway down in chapter 5 to walk in wisdom. And wisdom once again emphasizes the mind. It emphasizes our understanding our application of what we understand in the Bible, our application of what is true. And the fruit of that wisdom is good relationships, good behavior. It's going to be spirit-led conduct and relationships. We're going to be singing thanksgiving and psalms and hymns and spiritual psalm, making melody with our heart to the Lord. But also we're going to see it in our relationships with one another, husbands and wives, parents and children. Masters and slaves, or the modern equivalent maybe would be employers, employees. Well, we're going to see it shown in those relationships that we are showing godly fruit in how we relate to one another. And that brings us to this final section, which is to stand firm in the armor of God. So when we go back to chapter 6, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What I taught last week is to be strong in the Lord. Indeed, it's a commandment to us. We have a responsibility to be strong in the Lord, but the command is passive, meaning that your strengthening is not from your own. You are to be strengthened in the Lord, which means that you're to be strengthened by God. The more you walk with God, the more you understand God, the more you understand His Word, His will, his plan, his purpose, the more you will be strengthened in the Lord. And you're not only strengthened in the Lord, but it also says, and in the strength of his might. And Paul here used three different power words to emphasize the power of the Lord that is made available to you and to me. And that led us into the second section, which was the method of preparation. The method of preparation. What does it mean to be strengthened by the Lord? Well, what it means is in verse 11 is to put on the full armor of God. To put on the full armor of God. 
And the full armor in those times often referred to what a foot soldier would put on. The people who were on the front line. The people that who are most likely to see both hand-to-hand combat as well as have to protect themselves from people who are shooting arrows from a distance. This is the all-encompassing armor to protect us from the attacks. So we are to put on the armor of God, and then that led us to the third section, and this is where we left off, which was the purpose of the armor. The purpose of the armor. You see, it's one thing to say, yeah, the armor is supposed to protect us. Yes, the armor is to protect you, but it's to protect you in a very specific way. You see, the armor in verse 11 is so that you will be able to stand firm. And I mentioned this at the end of last week, the idea of standing firm, it's a defensive position. It's this idea that you are immovable. You are going to stand your ground. So you're called to stand firm. And we saw many passages with a similar command to stand firm. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And if there was ever a biblical call for manhood, that is it right there. Within the church, everyone is called to stand firm, but the men are counted upon to rise up and protect the interests of the church. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And Galatians 5.1 says it was freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And in that case, Paul is exhorting the Galatians to stand firm in the truth of the gospel and do not believe in false gospels, which end up yielding them back to the yoke of slavery. Stand firm, we see it in Philippians. It's the first commandment that you find in the book of Philippians. When Paul, very similar to what he says to the Ephesians, says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, you will see Paul repeat that command over and over again through many of his letters because it is so important to him And it should be so important to us that our lives after salvation reflects a change brought about by Christ, that we are glorifying Him in our walk. And so many people today, sadly within the church, miss out on this. They don't understand this. They think simply just confessing Christ and then going back and living the way that they lived before is going to be enough. And of course, your salvation is not by works. Your salvation is by faith. But that faith should lead to a desire to glorify God in your walk. So Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says that he wants to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Once again, standing firm, being immovable. And 1 Thessalonians 3.8 He calls for the Thessalonians to stand firm in the Lord. And 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 and verse 12, we see the same commands again. Resist, this time resist the devil, firm in your faith. And then verse 12, this is Silvanus speaking through this letter saying, stand firm in the truth that you have heard. And so we go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. We put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm, but stand firm against what? Stand firm, at the end of verse 11, against the schemes of the devil. This word for schemes is the same word that we get methods. Methods, it's like a schematic or various ways that the 
enemy can use to attack your weaknesses. You know, when you go into a battle and you know the other side has an expert tactician, someone who is great at strategy, someone who knows the enemy, if you're that enemy, you're worried because you know that person knows your strengths and weaknesses and you're trying to plan for how they're going to attack you. Let me tell you something. Satan knows the scriptures better than we do. Satan knows your weaknesses better than you do. Satan is stronger than each and every one of us combined. And Satan is going to attack. And so we put on the full armor so that we can stand firm against these schemes because Satan, in his intelligence, in his understanding, even in the wisdom that he has, he knows how to attack you better than you would even know how to attack yourself. The only protection is supernatural. The only protection you can rely upon is what we find in the Word. So you want to be able to stand against those schemes. And I'm actually going to spend a lot of this morning talking about these schemes because I want you not to be ignorant of what those schemes are. What does Satan do? What does the devil do to try to attack you? And fortunately, we have a lot of witness throughout the scriptures that shows us how Satan operates. First, let me give you some names of Satan. Satan has many names throughout the Bible. He has many names, including Satan, which literally means adversary in the Hebrew. And it came from the word which means to lie in wait. That's a descriptive term, isn't it? Satan is the one that lies in wait for you. We have the word devil, which in the Greek it means slander or accuser. He's referred to as the serpent. He literally was a serpent in Genesis 3. He's referred to similarly as a dragon in Revelation 12. He's called the adversary in 1 Peter 5, and we're going to look at some of these verses. He's called the enemy in Matthew 13. In Ephesians, earlier in this book, we saw him referred to as the prince of the power of the air. He's referred to numerous times as the evil one, both by Matthew as well as by John. He is given the names of some of the false gods of the Old Testament, Beelzebub and Belial. He is called the father of lies and a murderer, and we'll take a look at that passage as well. He is referred to as the tempter, and he is referred to as the deceiver. So he has many names he is referred to in many different ways. And even in these names, you can already get a hint of how he operates. You can already see how he seeks to throw you off course, how he seeks to make you useless for the spiritual war. But going back to Genesis chapter 3, when we think about the operations of Satan, we're going to look at these examples. I'm going to walk you through several of these examples to help you understand how Satan operates so that you can see just how important it is to be prepared through the Scriptures, through your knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures, but also to understand in what ways you're going to be attacked. Because in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 1, we have the story of Adam and Eve. And right from verse 1, what does the serpent do? Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, that's not what God said. God said you may eat of any tree except for one. So you already see Satan is seeking to change it. Has he really said you should not eat from any tree? And then after getting the answer back from the woman in verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. 
even though that's exactly what God told Adam. You realize that even from the beginning when we look at Genesis, Satan is a slanderer of God himself. Satan, with that verse, called God a liar. He wants you to think that God's promises are a lie. He wants you to think that the Bible is somehow a lie. That, no, this is actually written by men who are imperfect, so they didn't know what they were writing. Yeah, they've got a lot of good stuff in here, but you can't trust all of it. He wants you to think that the Word of God and the wisdom of God is not really the Word of God or the wisdom of God or that God is not really telling you the truth. And verse 5, he goes on to say, For God knows in that day that you, in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in that verse, he actually speaks truth. And so you have to understand that Satan mixes, often he mixes truth with deceit in an effort to try to, in this case, make Eve believe that God is a liar. And then we go to the book of Job. Most Bible historians believe that the very first book written in the Bible was not Genesis, but actually Job. It may have been the very first book that Moses wrote before he was called to write the history of the world in Genesis. And it's very interesting that in the very first book written, in the very first chapter, what do we see? We see this conversation happening between God and Satan. Verse 7, Satan comes before God, but in verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan is basically saying, Job, Job is righteous, but not because he truly trusts in you. He goes on to say in verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him and the house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But here's the challenge from Satan. Put forth your hand now. Touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan is telling God, there's no loyalty with the people that you call righteous. They will curse you just as I curse you. And so then verse 12, then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And what, do we, what happens after that for the rest of chapter 1? Satan takes away Job's donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, and his children. And then in chapter 2, we have another conversation. Because Job refused to curse God, even after losing his possessions, his most valuable possessions, and losing his children, he would not curse God. And then in chapter 2, the challenge is renewed. And Satan doesn't accept victory from the Lord, but rather says, well, if you actually put your hand upon him, then he'll curse you. And so the rest of the book of Job is about that challenge. Is Job going to curse God? And you know what's amazing when we think about that story? Job, we know a lot more about Job's situation than Job did at that time. We know about this conversation that happened between God and Satan. Job didn't know that. Job didn't know this conversation. He didn't know what God had said about him. He didn't know the reason why he was being afflicted. And in all of the book of Job, he was 
just wanting to have his day in court, to be able to stand before God and say, why, God, why am I receiving all this affliction? He did not know, as we know in looking at this book, that it was actually because he was righteous. And he, God was using him to glorify God by enduring all those difficulties without cursing him. Satan, his scheme was to make Job curse God. Similarly, he wants us to be able to do the same. He wants to bring trials into your life that's going to make you curse God. It's going to make you shake your fist at him. It's going to cause you to step back and stumble. And for some, it might reveal that they weren't true believers in God. But then we go to John chapter 8, and we see that Satan is not just what we have seen already, but he is also a liar and a murderer. He's not just a deceiver. He's not just wanting people to curse God, but he lies and he murders. Verse 43, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. We have a confrontation between Jesus Christ and the Pharisees of the day. And verse 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is, it is because you cannot hear my word. Jesus is saying, you can't understand what I'm saying because you can't hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. He says that to the Jewish leaders. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And this is very similar to what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verses 1 and 2, when we saw that, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you formerly walked after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. Formerly, before our salvation, we too were walking after Satan, even if we didn't realize it. And similarly, Jesus says here, you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And this is not to say that Satan literally murdered people, but by causing Adam and Eve, by tempting them to rebel against God, he brought death upon all humanity. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan is going to tell you lies. We saw that similarly when he, when he spoke to Eve and said, you shall surely not die. He was calling God a liar, but he will find other lies to make you not trust in God to tempt you to not to trust in God, to tempt you not to be obedient to God's word, to tempt you to think that you know better than God. He is a murderer and a liar. How about Matthew chapter 16? Satan wants you to focus on man's will and not your own. He wants your will to be different than God's will. He wants you to have desires and goals that is different than God's desires and goals. And by the way, how would you be able to know whether your goals are aligned with God's goals? The scriptures. But in Matthew chapter 16, they had wandered into an area called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And essentially they respond back saying that all the people believe that you're a prophet. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then after that, Jesus reveals that he must go to Jerusalem. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. 
That was the first time he had said that to his disciples. Now that you know who I am, I must go to Jerusalem and I must be persecuted. I must be killed. And then I will be raised up on the third day. That is God's plan for him. That is how he achieved salvation for us. But verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And verse 23, look what we see here. One moment, God the Father was using Peter to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the next moment, it is Satan. Verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter should have recognized that what Jesus Christ was saying was necessary. But Peter wanted to block it, and certainly we can understand that. We wouldn't want someone that we love and care about to suffer and to die. But Jesus Christ here is saying that you are setting your interests upon yourself and not upon God. So the way Satan schemes against you is to try to look to yourself, to be more self-serving, to be more self-centered, to only care about what you want. It's just like when we teach our kids not to be selfish, right? Think about your brothers. Think about your sisters. Think about your friends. You know, don't just eat all that ice cream for yourself, though I might still be tempted to do that. Don't eat all that ice cream for yourself. Share it with your brother. Share it with your sister. You know, don't be so self-absorbed, but think about other people first. Think about their needs. If you have some food and someone is hungrier, why not give your food to that person who's hungrier? You know, so we try to teach our children to be selfless because we understand that this is a virtue. But even more important is not that we are simply just to be selfless, but that we are to think in terms of what God wants. We are not to set our interests upon what we want, but what God wants. You want another, no, another scheme is unforgiveness. You know, we are called to forgive one another. We are called to forgive one another when we have been wronged. Of course, the other person is called to ask for forgiveness as well. But even if you don't have that person coming to you asking for forgiveness, you should always have a heart of forgiveness. And so we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, what's happening in this chapter is Paul is talking about some individual, and we don't have a whole lot of details. There was some individual who had wronged Paul and the church. And this individual had apparently come back and repented. He had asked for forgiveness. And so Paul here is calling for the church to forgive him. Verse 10, he says, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. And indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forg if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So in other words, if you forgive someone, I'm going to forgive that person. And if I forgive that person, I do it for your sake in the presence of Christ. But he gives us the purpose in verse 11, so that so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Did you know that when you don't forgive someone, when you continue to hold a grudge, you are actually falling trap into one of the schemes of Satan? He wants you to withhold forgiveness. He wants you to allow that unwillingness to forgive to turn into bitterness, anger, lack of joy and peace in your life. Satan wants you to behave in a way that no longer glorifies what Jesus Christ did for us. If God in human flesh was willing to die on the cross to die for our sins, 
that we deserve to pay for ourselves. If he was willing to take our sins away, then we should be willing to take the sins of other people away and forgive them. But unforgiveness, when you do that, you are turning into a tool of Satan much more than you are a tool of the Lord. How about anger? It's not just unforgiveness, but also anger. And we saw this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And certainly we see a lot of unrighteousness in this world that may cause righteous indignation in us. We might see God dishonored. We, we might see the abortion industry continue to grow. And it is right to be angry about that. But don't let that anger turn into sinful action. Don't let that anger consume you. And verse 27 says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Because the idea of those two verses is, is that if you give yourself into your anger, if you are controlled by your anger, if you allow your anger to lead to sin, you have given the devil an opportunity. An opportunity for what? An opportunity to make you useless, to take you off the battlefield, or even worse, to make you a tool for him. So Satan's schemes includes anger. But it's not just anger, it's also anxiety. Now this one's a hard one, especially during this time, I get it. I get it. And the reason why the scriptures speak to us so often about anxiety is because it is so easy to be tempted to it. It is so easy to feel it. It is so easy to feel helpless by it, and especially when we have felt like we have lost control of a situation. When we don't know what's coming, and especially during these times when people are out of a job, they're not sure how they're going to make ends meet. They're not sure where they're going to get the money for this month's rent or to feed their children. They're worried about what's going to happen in this world. I saw someone mention that uh, this lady's uh, grandmother, who had lived through the previous era when people were trying to bring Marxism into this country, who had seen the wars that were fought in order to protect the freedoms of this country, this grandmother is actually concerned because she sees Marxism coming back. She sees the things that she thought were defeated 30 years ago making a comeback, and she's worried. But worry can lead us to anxiety, and anxiety takes our focus off of God. Anxiety tempts us not to trust in God's promises. Anxiety makes us worried more about the here and now, worried more about our own comforts, our own feelings, our own circumstances, rather than focusing on what God may be doing through those circumstances. And so in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, we see, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. That's an important commandment. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And in this case, Peter is talking to a generation of Christians who are being persecuted by Nero. They're being persecuted or they're worried about persecution coming to them. And Peter is telling them, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, because ultimately it's God the one that's pressing you down right now. And there will come a proper time that He will exalt you. But verse 7, we read this, casting all your anxiety on Him. On who? On God. And that word for casting is like taking something and throwing it. You cast your anxiety on Him. And how do you do that? Do that in prayer. You get down on your knees and you pray to God. You go to the Scriptures, you remind yourself of God's promises. 
you remind yourself of God's truth. You remind yourself of great scriptures like Romans 8.28 that says, For God causes all things to come together for good, for those who are called according to God's purpose and those who love Him. You remind yourself of the great sovereignty of God that has held up through all of history and will hold up all the way to the end when we're called into His presence. You remind yourself just like Joseph in the book of Genesis when he was sold into slavery, when he was falsely accused, when he was sent into prison and had to be there for two years. And after 13 years from the time he was sold into slavery to the time that he was finally released from prison, he had seen nothing but dark times. But in all that, God had a purpose. And that's why Joseph could tell his brothers what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so we want to cast our anxiety upon God. We want to be able to lift up our prayers and recognize we must cast our anxiety. Why? Verse 7 says, because He cares for you. Do you realize the reason why we want to go to prayer before God? The reason why we want to cast our anxieties upon Him is because of His love for us. He wants to take that away. He wants you to feel peace and joy in the Lord. He wants you to be trusting in Him and not to be controlled by your anxiety. Because when you're controlled by your anxiety, your focus is off of the will of God. And your focus is completely on nothing else but the circumstances around you. But when you trust in God to bear that anxiety for you, now your focus returns back to His will. And you're reminded of His purposes. You're reminded of what He wants you to do, how you are to behave, what His purpose is in that. And then verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. And look at this, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When we give into anxiety, when we are controlled by that anxiety, when we have fear that's gripping us, when we are focused on nothing else except the circumstances around us, we are now open to Satan to devour us. Once again, making us useless for God's purposes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, talk about the blindness that Satan has brought to the world. Evangelism is not easy, right? Sharing the gospel can be hard because a lot of people don't respond to it. We see that especially in a lot of our families, a lot of our unbelieving families, for Alice and I were the only believers in each of our families. We have shared the gospel with both parents and extended families, they have not responded, and it's hard. In one case, I was asked not to share it anymore. In another case, we get cold shoulders. We get non, no response. We get responses that say, just leave me alone to just do what I want to do. I don't want to hear about this. we got to remember that the reason why that is, it's not because we're not clever enough. It's not because we're not persuasive enough. It's not because we haven't thought of some method to make people accept Jesus Christ, but it's because the darkness over their eyes that prevents them from seeing the truth is a darkness that's actually brought about by Satan. It's a darkness that's brought about by their own sinfulness as well. Verse 3, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So in other words, even though the truth of the gospel, it's veiled, it's covered. It's specifically covered to those who are dying. In other words, those who are rejecting the truth. 
and verse 4, in whose case the God of this world, and that is Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So evangelism is also part of that spiritual battle. And Satan's scheme is to try to keep as many unbelievers in unbelief. And so you got to realize that when people respond to the gospel, it's not going to be because of your cleverness. It's going to be because God has supernaturally lifted that darkness. Because we are not more powerful than Satan, but God is. And His Word is. His gospel is. And so you continue sharing it and you trust God for those results. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we also see that Satan brings false gospels. He brings lies. He brings deceit. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, Paul says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. You know, the gospel is such a simple message. It really is. There's no works on our part. It's all a work of Christ, and we just need to believe. And for many people, they can't grasp that. They can't accept that. There must be something more. And that's why you have cults. You have people like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormons. You have other cults. You have false religions that try to make salvation a matter of our works. But there is no such thing in Scripture. It's only by faith. But this is the work of Satan trying to make you think that the gospel is other than just the simplicity of believing in Christ. And sometimes even in our effort to try to include more people in salvation. Oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, they may have a false gospel, but I know they're saved. I know their heart. I, I've, been, I've been overseas, and I've met people that don't know Jesus Christ. They're good people. I know their heart. They're, they're going to be saved. There's going to be multiple paths to salvation. Beloved, the moment we start to include other people who do not know or have not accepted the gospel, you are being tempted to be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Verse 4, for if one comes and preaches another Christ whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Paul was rebuking that there were these false apostles bringing false gospels that they were listening to and believing in. And then later in that chapter, Paul says this, No wonder for even Satan, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You know what this tells me? When we see that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, it tells me that Satan is not masquerading in some silly outfit with a pitchfork. Satan looks like an angel of light. Satan looks like you. Satan looks like me. Satan looks like any godly person you've ever met. You're not going to be able to distinguish Satan by appearances. You're not going to be able to distinguish Satan just by how sincere they sound. The only way you're going to be able to distinguish Satan is by the words, by what they believe, by their behavior. Does it line up with Scripture or not? And you obviously, you have to know Scripture to be able to discern that. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel light. Therefore, verse 15, not just Satan, it is not surprising that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 
And his servants in a spiritual sense would be the demonic realm. But in a physical sense, all of us prior to salvation, we followed after the God of this world who is Satan. And so there are many who are following after Satan who are disguising themselves as one of us. Can I say this? That includes many preachers. That includes many people that you see on TV. That includes some of the most popular speakers in the nation today. The ones who write some of the best-selling books. And the only way you can distinguish it is by hearing their message and asking yourself, does this line up with Scripture? Does this make sense according to God's Word? And you remember the temptation of Christ. You know, at the end of chapter 3 in the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ is baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit comes down. Voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was the start. That was the official start of Jesus Christ's ministry on earth. He had lived uh, probably about 30 years up to that time, but he did not officially start his ministry. He started his ministry with that baptism of the Holy Spirit falling upon him, being baptized by John the Baptist. And what's the first thing that Jesus Christ does now that he has the Holy Spirit upon him? And now that he's going to start his ministry, the very first thing that has to happen is that Jesus Christ must go into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Why? Because that's where Adam failed. Adam was tempted and he sinned. Jesus is now going to go through an even greater temptation and he's going to succeed. But when you read through this, there are three different challenges that Satan gives to Jesus Christ. And I won't read this in detail because we're getting short on time, but of these challenges, Satan appeals to the truth of Scripture. He actually uses Scripture against Jesus Christ. The first challenge is that, look, I know you've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Go ahead and command these stones to become bread. Jesus is the Son of God. He's got the power to do it. Jesus won't do it. Do you know why Jesus won't do it? Because he had to endure all the temptations of man, so that when he went to the cross, he could be our representative. He never used his own divine powers in order to meet his own needs. Yeah, there would be times when he created food, but he used that to feed others. He would not use that for his own needs. And in fact, in verse 4, he quotes from Scripture in response. And I love this because Jesus Christ is more powerful than Satan. He could have reached into his divine power and pushed Satan away. He could have chosen at that time to go ahead and destroy Satan. But Jesus Christ, having exhibited the form of a man, what does he do? He quotes Scripture. And why am I so encouraged by that? Because you can do that. I can do that. That shows us that the power of God is in God's Word. You can quote Scripture to be able to resist those attacks. The second challenge was if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. And he quotes a scripture to say that the angels will come and prevent you from hitting the ground. Jesus Christ could have done that. But what did he do again? He quotes scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I just said that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and we see here an example that he can quote scripture better than even the best of preachers. But you need to be able to discern if he's twisting it. And in this case, Satan was. And the final challenge was that Satan wanted Jesus to worship him. Satan gave him that promise that everything in this world I'll give to you if you just fall down and worship me. And Jesus refused to do that. 
and once again quote a scripture saying, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And of course, everything that Satan was pointing to, it belongs to Jesus Christ anyway. But by bowing down and worshiping Satan, Jesus Christ does not have to go through all the difficulties he's going to go through. And Satan would now have the Son of God on his side. But Jesus resisted all of those temptations. And finally, I'll bring you to Revelation chapter 12. And I'm giving you a lot of examples, but I'm doing this because I want you to understand the way Satan operates. Understanding the way Satan operates, once again, it's going to help you be prepared for the attacks. Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, we see this vision, and the great dragon was thrown down, and the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So we see him as a deceiver there. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud cry in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. What Satan is doing day and night is accusing those who have been saved. He is bringing accusations, saying that this person is not worthy of salvation. Look at what that person did. Look at what Eki is doing. Look at what Alice is doing. They don't deserve salvation. But you know who's interceding for us? Psalm 110 verse 4 says that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and he is the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The one who is interceding on your behalf for all eternity through all these accusations is Jesus Christ himself. But these accusations are meant for us to even doubt our own salvation. And sometimes even in our own struggles through sin, we may start to wonder, am I really saved? And even that is a scheme of Satan because by doing that, you're taking your mind off what God wants you to do. And you're putting it right back on yourself. So we want to be aware of how Satan schemes against us, how he attacks us. And I've got this table that just shows all of what I've just covered in a table format. Deception. He wants us to curse God. He is a liar and a murderer. He wants us to be characterized by unforgiveness, by anger, by anxiety. He blinds the world to the gospel. He gives out false gospels. He twists God's truth and he accuses the saints. All of this to say that what Satan wants you to do is to not trust God. What Satan wants you to do is to think that somehow God is not telling you the truth that somehow he's lying to you, that somehow you need some additional wisdom outside of the Word of God. And unfortunately, there are many churches today that are telling you that, oh, the Bible is fine, but you also need to read this, and you need to read this. So many churches out there making a book called White Fragility Required Reading. It's raging through all the corporations. And when people say you need to read history books and you need to read this person's biography and all that, that's helpful. But what we need is the Word of God. You know the Word of God, you will be protected. You know the Word of God, you will have the message of salvation. You know the Word of God, you know the gospel, you know how to bring someone else to Christ. You know the Word of God, you know how you're to behave. You know how you're expected to walk and you will be protected by the schemes of Satan. But this world challenges each and every day not to trust God. It challenges each and every day not to walk according to the way God has called us to walk. It challenges each and every day to give in to anxiety, to give in to fear, to give in to anger, to start thinking about worldly things, to be self-consumed. 
your protection against that is the Word of God. This is why the Word, we are completely dependent upon God through His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit that helps you to understand that Word. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me assure you, you are following after Satan. And the call from the Bible is to recognize that you are a sinner, that you will stand in judgment before a holy God. You will have to give an account before a holy God for all the sins that you have committed. And make no mistake, there has been no perfect human being ever except for Jesus Christ himself. But that's why Jesus Christ was able to go to the cross. And he was able to die, though he did not deserve it. He died in order to pay for the sins of those who would repent and follow after him. And so the call for you this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, my call to you is to repent of your sins and to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To make that commitment to follow after Him because it's not your works that will make you righteous before God. It is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ that makes you righteous. And so you can do that even now. You can confess your sins before God. You can confess your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can repent, which means that you are making a commitment to turn away from your former manner of life and now you're going to follow after Jesus. It doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly. None of us do. That's why we have to meet constantly. That's why we need fellowship. That's why we need to be in the Word constantly. We are not promised that we're going to become perfect in this life, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God, we are told that we can become more and more and like Christ each and every day. And that is a blessed promise to all those who believe. But even more importantly, you will not be able to escape the sentence of condemnation without confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because the condemnation, the judgment is eternity in hell. It is eternal torment for all of eternity. But the promise of salvation is that we have eternal life in the presence of God and the presence of all of His saints. And there is nothing to it except to repent and to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Put your hope upon Him and Him alone. Devote yourself to following Him, to walking in the manner worthy of the calling. Because there is no way that you're going to be able to do that on your own. You can't prove your righteousness before Him. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ can that be made possible. And that's why it's only through Jesus Christ that you can have eternal life and be able to escape the sentence of hell. And you can do this even now. You can do this even this morning. And if you have any questions, you can always come to us at the church. You can call us. You can send us an email, a message, call into the office, drop by the office. We'd be happy to talk to you about your spiritual condition. But for the rest of us, hopefully this has been helpful to understand how Satan operates. The more you understand how Satan operates, the more you understand how you are to prepare for those attacks. And it's a spiritual attack. The spiritual war has to be engaged mentally. The armor of God is by the truths of God that we learn from the Scriptures. Do not neglect it. Encourage one another to greater faithfulness. Encourage one another, remind each other about the reality of the spiritual war because it is raging all around us each and every day. Do it for the glory of God. Trust in His purposes in all things. And look forward to that hope in which we will be brought into His presence. Let us pray.